Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgoode Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Osgoode Professor Janet Mosher has four questions on sexual abuse and the law for Osgoode alumna Loretta Merritt, one of Canada's foremost lawyers specializing in abuse and harassment cases. Now, here's Janet Mosher. Statistics are disturbing. According to research compiled by the Toronto-based Canadian Women's Foundation, 30% of women aged 15 or older report being the victims of sexual assault at least once. While we know that the vast majority of sexual assaults are not reported to the police, in fact, recent data from Statistics Canada puts that at 6%. In 2021 alone, there were over 34,000 police-reported sexual assaults, and this is the highest rate since 1996. If only 6% are reported to police, the total number of sexual assaults in 2021 is more than half a million. And 52% of Canadian women who responded to a 2018 Angus Reid poll said they had been subjected to sexual harassment in their workplaces. As just noted, the majority of sexual assaults for a whole variety of understandable reasons are not reported to the police and do not proceed through the criminal justice system. And over the past two decades, increasingly survivors of gender-based violence have looked to the civil justice system for redress. My guest today, Loretta Merritt, is one of the um, frontline advocates of this challenging area of law. Loretta, who earned her LLB and LLM from Osgoode Hall Law School, practices law with Toronto-based Torquin Mains LLP and is one of the few lawyers in Ontario who has substantive experience in dealing with abuse and harassment in civil lawsuits and employment cases. She is also a leader in bringing to her practice a trauma-informed approach that puts the needs of sexual abuse survivors at the forefront. Her work has been recognized with numerous awards, including the Attorney General's Victim Services Award of Distinction for 2021-22 and the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association's John A. McLeish Award, which recognizes exceptional contributions to trial fairness and access to justice. Uh, Welcome, Loretta, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The first question that I have, the question number one, I'm wondering if you could tell me more about how a trauma-informed approach translates into your day-to-day practice with sexual abuse survivors. Well, I think we have to start by understanding that there are many things that can cause trauma. You know, in addition to sexual assault or harassment, you know, emotional abuse can cause trauma, but also, you know, witnessing someone else being abused or harassed um, and things like racism, bullying, um, as well as sort of the more traditional uh, things that we, we, you know, a, a serious injury or accident, et cetera. But there can be a number of things that cause trauma. So, you know, you may not know as a lawyer um, when your clients have experienced trauma. They may, you know, it may seem obvious, but in other situations, it may not be quite as obvious. So it's important to be sensitive or at least alive to the issue that the person you're dealing with uh, could well have experienced a trauma. 
Um, there are, while everyone experiences and reacts differently uh, tra to a trauma, there are some typical responses um, that lawyers should familiarize themselves with. Um, things like uh, what what is called flashbacks or re-experiencing the traumatic event, uh, avoiding reminders of the traumatic event, um, dysregulation, um, altered self-perception, which includes things like guilt or shame or an exaggerated sense of responsibility. It's my fault this happened. Um, altered relationships like problems with trust uh, and, and feelings of being overwhelmed or hopeless. These are all sort of typical uh, responses. Um, I had a conversation with a psychologist once about um, this, you know, exaggerated sense of responsibility piece of it. And the psychologist told me it's very interesting that self-blame can be a psychological coping mechanism. And it, it works something like this. If, if an abuse survivor thinks that the assault that happened to them is their fault, then that gives them some power to change their behavior in order to keep safe in the future. Whereas if they if they have no responsibility and it's a completely random event in that sense, then they remain unsafe. So, you know, blaming yourself for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or or any other sort of factual um, element can actually be a coping mechanism. And I thought that was very interesting because, um, you know, it as a lawyer uh, had me think twice before saying to people, oh, it's not your fault, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, we can't presume uh, to be therapists um, and, 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 and try to treat our clients. But what we can do is re recognize that for most um, uh, harassment or abuse survivors, coming to a lawyer and engaging the civil justice system is not just about money. Um, although that is the main thing that the civil justice system delivers, um, for someone who's been uh, uh, sexually assaulted or harassed, the civil justice system can be as much about standing up for oneself, holding people or institutions to account, empowerment, healing, getting justice, as it can about getting money. Um, and I think it's important to, to not only recognize that, but then also think about how can we minimize the risk that litigation is re-traumatizing. And I would say the, the number one rule that I have in that regard is to be extremely straightforward with the client from the outset about what can and cannot be achieved. And, and before even doing that, you must ask the client what it is that they are trying to achieve. Because I think one of the problems that lawyers have is that we tend to look at a client at like a law school problem, a set of facts and say, oh, I know what needs to happen. I know the law that applies and I know how to get to the result. Um, and I think it's really important before jumping into that lawyer fixing helping mode uh, to really take a pause and listen to what the client is trying to achieve, and then, um, you know, offer advice and potential solutions, etc. Um, but I also think there's some very practical things we can all do in every case um, to bring a trauma-informed approach to our practices. Uh, one is to avoid assumptions about gender um, and to use correct pronouns. 
um, you know, and if you make a mistake in this regard, it's not fatal and there's no reason to make a big fuss or explain why you made the mistake. A simple apology um, and, and, a, and a promise to try to do better is sufficient. Um, I think you have to also put an emphasis on safety and trust. And you can do this by making sure that the client knows that you work for them. And how do you do that? Well, you explain things like solicitor client privilege and that the, the lawyer's role is to provide advice, but also their obligation is to take instructions from the client. And so if you spend some time, or if, I shouldn't say you, I, if I spend time doing this at the beginning, it helps lay a foundation that the client understands the parameters of the relationship and that I work for them notwithstanding that I obviously have more legal knowledge and expertise than they do in the area. Um, and again, you know, it, 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 it's a matter of doing simple things like, you know, in the first meeting, ask the client, like, what works best for you to tell me your story? Do you want to do this over the phone? Do you want to do this in person by a Zoom meeting? Um, or even in writing, I find for lots of clients, especially if they have a long and difficult story to tell, um, it's better to, you know, I, I've designed a questionnaire that tries to focus um, on specific aspects of the story. But, you know, I give it to them and say, take a couple of weeks, you know, write that. You, you know, write your initial thoughts and then leave it for a couple of days. And as other things come to you, go back and add to the story. And sometimes that's a much easier approach because the client can do it at their own pace, in their own time, uh, in, in a space that's comfortable for them. Um, and speaking of spaces, I think it's really important as lawyers that we make our meeting spaces safe. We give clients sufficient personal space. We allow sufficient time for a meeting. We build in time for breaks. Like, you don't know, like a doctor's office, book yourself back to back uh, because that sense of urgency and impatience is going to um, obviously uh, be picked up by the client. Um, again, I think it's really important to provide clear information, timelines, you know, as to when things might happen. And I view it as my job to help the clients set realistic expectations about what they can and cannot expect from the civil justice system. Um, another thing is not leaving them hanging in the dark, wondering what's going on. Uh, not every client is going to be comfortable picking up the phone and calling for updates or emailing for updates. So it's important to touch base. Even if nothing big has happened, just say, you know, we're in a holding pattern. It's going to be a few months before you hear from me because these things are what's happening. Um, another thing you can do is, is really avoid changing lawyers or even team members where possible. I mean, sometimes it's unavoidable, but, you know, when a, a relationship of trust is formed, um, that's important and special and needs to be guarded and, and, and not easily cast aside. Um, I also think even though I, as a lawyer, more often than not, know what to do in order to advance the, the client's interest and move the file in the direction we want it to go. I try to create opportunities for choice, collaboration, control, even something as simple as timing uh, or location of service of the statement of claim. Um, you know, a client having a choice in that um, as well as being informed when it's done, uh, can really give them a sense of empowerment and 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 that it's more of a team uh, uh, effort 
um, as opposed to just feeling like they're along for the ride. Um, open communication is really important. Um, we as lawyers have to allow our clients to express their fearing, feelings without fear of being judged by us. Um, we have to use accessible language. Um, it's amazing how much of the legal jargon becomes part of our daily parlance. Like we, we have to actually realize that, you know, when we use phrases like PJI, you know, prejudgment interest, a client doesn't know what PJI is. And, and e even just formalistic language can be intimidating. Um, throughout the, the solicitor-client relationship, I would say that active listening is really important. Um, and and I, as I said before, avoiding sort of a paternalistic approach to it where, you know, you're the client, you don't know anything, I'm the lawyer, I know everything, so I'm going to tell you what to do. Um, that, I think, is, it, it, it has huge risk for being re-traumatizing. Um, you know, my job as a lawyer is to provide advice. And I actually sit down with the client right at the beginning and I say, you know, my only skills in this regard are as a lawyer. So I can give you really good legal advice and options and recommendations about how to maximize your legal result, <clears throat> which in most cases means getting the largest settlement or judgment for you. But I also understand that that may not be your only goal and it may not even be your primary goal. Um, and I, I ask the client um, if they have a, a a, a support team in place, whether that's a formal therapist or friends, family, a spouse, someone they can talk to uh, or consult with so they can take my advice and consider it in the context of their whole life and all the other um, goals and objectives they have, as well as tolerance they have. You know, I've had clients say, I want to settle a case when my recommendation is to proceed because I know I can get more money. But they want it over. And that, of course, is their decision and their right. And I think it's really important as a lawyer not to push too hard and presume that you know what is best for your client, uh, because ultimately it's their job uh, to decide what is best for them. The last point I'd like to make in this regard is it is extremely important to prepare your clients for significant steps in the litigation, like discovery, mediation, trial, et cetera. And that means preparing them in a number of ways, giving them written material in advance, make sure they have all the documents, point out difficulties in the documents, have a, have a preparation meeting where you walk them through who's there, what's the purpose of it, how it's going to go. I actually go through all the areas of questioning and explain why and how they're relevant, because otherwise it can be very traumatizing to a client to have personal questions asked when they don't understand how they're relevant or what the purpose of that is. Um, I think, you know, in fact, it's important at the outset of the case to prepare a client um, for what is to come. For example, to tell them that, um, you know, if you if you start a civil lawsuit, you will be required to produce all your therapy documents. You don't want that coming up for the first time when you're preparing for uh, examinations for discovery. So preparing the client and and having them understand what is to come, I think, is a huge, important step in a trauma informed approach.
Uh, thank you very much, Loretta. I think you've provided so many really practical tips of how to do this work well that will be invaluable to those listening. Um, I think for me, one of the things I found very helpful, and you um, articulated this in lots of detail, is just thinking about the ways in which traumatic experiences like a sexual assault is an experience where control has been totally taken away from a person. And so as counsel, um, trying to find a multiplicity of ways in which we can put control back into the hands of the clients that we're working with, that is that we don't take control away, is so important. And I think your tips give us all kinds of ways of thinking about how we, how we manage that. Certainly another issue of concern that comes up about trauma-informed practice is the importance not only of attending to trauma and its impact on clients, but also how working with trauma survivors impacts lawyers and appreciating too that lots of lawyers are themselves trauma survivors. So I'm just wondering, like Loretta, as a follow-up in your work, um, what might be some of the things that you do or you know the colleagues do to try to ensure their own wellness so that they can sustain this work over a period of time? It's a really good question, Janet. I think, you know, everybody is familiar with the, at least the concept of vicarious trauma, and that is, you know, experiencing trauma just by being exposed to this kind of work. I think as lawyers, we have an obligation to keep an eye on our own mental health. Um, and there are um, resources online um, that, that you know, you can do a, a, a little questionnaire. Um, the Law Society as well has a program um, member services for mental health support and resources. But sometimes it's it's just as simple as as having a friend or two who practices in the same area um, where you can you can debrief, obviously within the bounds of solicitor client confidentiality, um, but just get that that kind of support. So you know everybody has to figure out their own uh, best way uh, to avoid vicarious trauma. It might be you know exercising. Um, it might be you know any any number of things. But it is something uh, to keep in mind and 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 to try to uh, uh, minimize or avoid for sure. Thanks, Loretta. Um, the second of um, the two questions that I have is to ask whether you might speak to whether there are particular kinds of confidentiality concerns or considerations that arise in your trauma-informed approach to legal practice. Yes, um, Janet, um, confidentiality is a big issue in um, sexual assault and harassment litigation. Um, I think at the outset, uh, I always ask the client if they want to uh, proceed using their own name or a, a pseudonym. Um, there are uh, rules that, that provide for um, someone to proceed under a Jane Doe, for example. Um, you know, depending on, on how hotly that's contested by the other side, you may need psychological evidence uh, that the client will be deterred, that others may be deterred, that um, there will be psychological harm if, uh, if forced to identify themselves publicly. But that is a consideration and a discussion that should happen at the outset. Um, whether the client wants media attention, I mean, sometimes people are specifically bringing forward legal proceedings because they want public awareness and education and they want the media uh, uh, to be informed. So that's a conversation that should happen at the outset. You know, along the way, 
um, again, the client needs to know um, that when you sue, you sort of waive a lot of rights to confidentiality of personal information. For example, production of documents, you know, attending a discovery, the scope of that. I, I touched on that a little bit earlier, but again, it's it's something the client needs to know in advance. Um, and of course, at the end of civil litigation, the whole issue of confidentiality agreements or gag orders or non-disclosure agreements um, comes up. Uh, those documents are frequently requested by defendants as part of a civil settlement. Um, a, you know, a typical uh, settlement agreement includes a provision where the parties agree to keep the terms of settlement confidential. But you know, years ago, when abuse survivors started suing for sexual assault, it was not uncommon for defendants to ask for very broadly worded confidentiality agreements, um, agreements that went way beyond keeping the amount of money paid confidential. Um, and in fact, in some cases, actually prevented the survivor from ever again discussing or disclosing their abuse. Um, and obviously, you know, these kind of agreements are offensive in the extreme in a, in a sexual harassment or sexual assault case. And, you know, in, in, in 2009, um, there were a number of recommendations that came out of the Cornwall inquiry. And one of the most important ones, in my view, was that um, for survivors of sexual abuse, where secrecy and shame are part of the harm done to them, having to maintain silence in exchange for a settlement of a civil uh, claim can have very negative uh, repercussions. Um, so interestingly, we are now seeing um, legislation being introduced, for example, in Prince Edward Island, and I won't go into it in detail, but they've introduced legislation that limits organizations from using non-disclosure agreements, um, which prevent uh, uh, survivors of harassment or discrimination from speaking out. Um, PEI was the first province in Canada uh, to limit the use of non-disclosure agreements in cases of sexual misconduct. But, you know, now we have the Ontario government having just introduced a bill that would ban the use of non-disclosure agreements in sexual misconduct cases um, in post-secondary uh, institutions where the employees are looking for work at a different institution. So um, again, and, and this sort of ties in with the trauma-informed approach, regardless of what I as a lawyer think is best, it is up to the client to make the ultimate decision, but it's my job to raise the long-term implications. Um, so for example, in a case where um, there's a very broad NDA, I would have no hesitancy in saying to my client, what about if you have children in the future and you want to tell your children the story um, of your being sexually assaulted? How can you today you know, enter into an agreement that would prevent you from doing something like that? Again, uh, ultimately, it's the client's decision. But as a lawyer, it's it's my job to think about the future uh, needs and, and, and interests of that client and at least have the conversation. Um, the only other thing I would say is um, there are some uh, sort of confidentiality provisions that uh, are requested by defendants that I think you know, are, are unenforceable and illegal, such as a, a, a promise not to report uh, to police or other regulatory bodies. Um, 
And again, you know, I see a day coming where a court says, you know, just a really broad based non-disclosure agreement, gag order, preventing a discussion of abuse, um, may be held to be void as against public policy. Um, so again, as a lawyer, when, when these things are requested, I try to sit down with my client and discuss all possible options and scenarios and realize this is not a one size fits all. They're, they're, you know, the limits are only uh, the lawyer's respective uh, creativity. Um, but it's a good idea to address all of these confidentiality issues at the outset of the litigation uh, because it can inform, you know, how you conduct yourself throughout. Yeah, thanks so much, Loretta. I, I want to just underscore a point that you made, which is the, the silencing of a survivor is itself an additional form of harm because being able to share that story um, with others is often very, very important to healing and recovery. Um, and I, I guess one of the other things that I see on the, the landscape, so maybe just a quick follow-up question, is of the increasing use of defamation lawsuits, the threat of a lawsuit or an actual lawsuit being commenced against a survivor as another form of silencing. And I'm wondering, is that something that you're increasingly seeing in your practice? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we did see a few cases a few years ago, and it, it looked like maybe a trend was starting. There was a case in 2014 involving two women who were sued by an uncle for defamation after sending e emails to various uh, people accusing him of sexually assaulting them, and he was awarded uh, significant damages. And then there was a case in 2017 where a woman uh, who said she was assaulted by her boyfriend and he was charged uh, and not convicted. Uh, he sued her for malicious prosecution and got $24,000, I think it was. So it certainly can happen. I'm not saying it can't. But in, in more than 30 years of doing this work, I have personally only ever seen it a half a dozen times or less. Mm -hmm. And in every case... The litigation was dropped, um, you know, ex expressly, you know, discontinued or just left to sort of die on the vine after pleadings were exchanged. I've never had a case go to examinations for discovery. And I think the reason for this is that defamation and malicious prosecutions are difficult and expensive to prosecute. And so when a defendant is not convicted criminally, you know, he or she may be all fired up about malicious prosecution, defamation, et cetera. But once the realities of, of how difficult and expensive that litigation is, you know, the, 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 the wherewithal to proceed with it just isn't there. So, you know, yes, it's there, but it's not, you know, a huge concern to me in terms of how much it's happening. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, I just briefly note too, there's some recent empirical research with uh, women who've experienced threats of defamation that silence them. So maybe hasn't materialized yet into um, clients at your door, so to speak, but, but having a chilling um, effect, I think especially with younger women who engage with um, social media. And I think we're seeing as well in some places, um, I'm thinking of a case right now in BC where um, strategic lawsuits against public participation are being brought as a try as a as a way to counteract the the defamation lawsuit and to try to prevent it from from actually going ahead so there may be some other developments we'll see um into the near future 
But for my third question, um, I wonder if you're seeing dominant trends developing when it comes to institutional liability in sexual abuse cases. Well, one of the most interesting um, damages issue um, that I've seen, and I think we're going to see more of, is what I call poor institutional response to disclosure. So, I mean, obviously, if abuse or assault continues after the institution's been notified, there may be liability for the subsequent abuse. But there have also been several cases where courts have considered whether the institutional response to receiving allegations of sexual assault has been appropriate. Um, and in, in a few cases, the courts have found that the institutional response was inadequate and negligent. So it, it's sort of a separate cause of action. It's a duty to respond appropriately, offer support, etc. Um, there are a, a couple of older cases in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the courts commented that an institution's response was negligent, um, but didn't allocate any specific damages. And, and this again happened last year in a case called CO and Williamson and Trillium Lakeland's uh, District School Board. Um, a judge found that a school board was negligent based on its response to a student's disclosure of sexual abuse by a teacher. And so in this case, what happened was the student reported the abuse while it was happening in 1983. And the board fired the teacher, but allowed him to continue working uh, for several months until the end of the school year. Um, and then the board didn't offer much support to the student. I think there were a couple of sessions with a student teacher guidance counselor. Um, but aside from that brief counseling, nothing else was done to assist the plaintiff with the emotional fallout from the abuse. Um, and the, the court found that the school board's actions were directed more at protecting itself than uh, assisting the plaintiff. And, and they said the board ought to have referred the plaintiff to a qualified counselor for therapy, ought not to have allowed the teacher to continue uh, teaching until the end of the school year where the student saw the teacher um, and, and basically breached its duty to protect the plaintiff from harm. Um, the court, and the court also um, found that the school board was vicariously liable and you know, responsible for the abuse itself. They didn't separate separate out specific damages attributable to the conduct after the disclosure. There's only one case that I've seen where that happened, um, and it was an older case in 2003. Um, but in that case, the plaintiff disclosed past sexual abuse by her father to a Jehovah's Witness church elder. And this happened in 1989. Um, and the elder's advice was that she should confront her father in front of the elders and give him a chance to repent. So they arranged a meeting at the family home and she had to describe the sexual abuse in detail in front of her father. And that was traumatic for her. And then they did a second meeting with two of the same elders, but a third one. But because there was a new guy at, the, at the, that meeting, they had to repeat the whole story again. Um, and, you know, rumors leaked out into the community and it didn't look like there were any sanctions imposed on the father. So she thought that she was perceived as having lied and felt ostracized. And, and there were a number of negative consequences that flowed from that. Um, she then sued. Um, and and the court held that it was reasonably foreseeable that the course of action um, that they took would cause emotional harm to her. Um, 
the court said because the elders had no experience in the area of sexual abuse, it was incumbent upon them to consult with a professional as to how to minimize the harm to the plaintiff or avoid it altogether. And the court found that the defendants were, you know, uh, responsible in damages in the amount of $5,000. Now, obviously, that's not a lot of money. Um, but I think today, given that we have so much greater knowledge and understanding about the importance of a proper institutional response, uh, there may well be uh, a, a different approach uh, we see in the future. I mean, the there's plenty of medical literature to support the idea that a proper response with correct messaging, as well as therapeutic support, can significantly mitigate the harm and damage caused by a sexual assault. And, you know, certainly over the last 25 years or so, I've seen tremendous change in many institutional responses. I mean, some organizations today offer counseling as soon as an allegation is brought to their attention. Um, but I think for those institutions that don't respond appropriately, I think we're going to start to see significant damages awarded, particularly if the plaintiff can lead evidence of the industry standard and expert evidence of what harm was caused specifically by the inadequate institutional response. Um, you know, and as the court said in, the, in that uh, uh, Watchtower case, um, that, that's the Jehovah's Witness case, institutions are are well advised to consult with sexual assault experts when planning a response uh, to disclosure of, of allegations. Um, and of course, um, they should be notifying their uh, insurers of, of any potential uh, uh, cover, you know, to avoid any potential coverage issues. Thank you, Loretta. Um, as you've pointed out, uh, the proper institutional response can be exceptionally important in mitigating the harms of sexual abuse. So there's questions institutions, of course, want to limit their liability, but importantly as well, their institutional response, as you described so effectively, um, plays an important role in mitigating harm. Um, and that also has me um, thinking about employers' obligations under the Human Rights Code um, and also under occupational health and safety legislation to ensure that they have the um, appropriate policies and procedures in, in place. Um, and, and that leads me uh, to the fourth and final question. And that is, uh, what trends are you seeing in the court's approach to damages in sexual abuse cases? There's a couple of interesting new things um, that I'm seeing. One has to do with economic losses. Um, income loss has always been very challenging um, uh, in some cases, particularly um, where, uh, uh, you know, abuse is historic, has happened a long time before the litigation. But, but in all cases, it can be challenging. An alternative to a traditional income loss approach is the idea of a diminution in the capital asset of earning capacity. In other words, you may not be able to show you lost a specific job or that you would have had a specific job were it not for the abuse, but rather your ability, your your innate ability to earn income has been negatively impacted. And in the old days, um, you know, we saw these loss of earning capacity awards uh, being made in the range of, you know, 50 or $75,000, not a lot of money. Uh, but in the uh, JRS and Glendening case, 
um, a research study by Professor Ross McMillan out of the University of Minnesota was presented. And he provided a methodology to uh, quantifying loss of earning capacity um, uh, using including uh, Canadian uh, Stats Canada data. And he estimated that the, the long-term cost of criminal violence um, can be quantified. Um, and, and the amount he found was that, and this was for male abuse survivors, it was limited in that, in that sense, but it, the, the finding was that, you know, the a, a, a man... Uh, abused in childhood would earn $6,000 a year less um, income than his non-abused uh, counterpart. And that was a 1993 calculation. In 2022 dollars, it's closer to about $10,000 a year over a lifetime of earning. That number, uh, you know, is could be four, $400 to $450,000, a substantial uh, uh, amount more than uh, than what we saw previously. Um, the recent case that I referred to where the school board was sued and uh, had the poor institutional response by allowing the teacher to continue earning. In that case, um, again, the plaintiff was unsuccessful in establishing a traditional income loss, but was awarded 200,000 for loss of earning capacity. So I think that's going to be um, uh, something we see is, an, is a, a trend in the courts of awarding a much more substantial amount of damages for, for diminution in the, in the capital asset of the ability to earn income. Um, the other, the other uh, uh, type of uh, uh, award I think that has been often overlooked in these cases is the, the loss of interdependent relationship claim. This is also an economic loss claim. Uh, you know, we typically see it in cases of catastrophic or near catastrophic personal injuries, but it may also be appropriate in some sexual assault cases where the abuse prevents a person from getting married uh, or living with a life partner. The whole thing is premised on the idea that uh, two people can live more economically than one. And of course, you need an economist to quantify uh, the amount of this loss because it depends on the education and income level of the theoretical partner that they might have. Uh, but it can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and the, the last thing I wanted to mention was a, a very interesting recent family law case. Alawalia, um established the new tort of family violence. Um, this was a case where the husband was claiming that the wife could only be compensated for three specific physical assaults, um, but she wanted damages for decades of abusive conduct. And the court relied on the definition of family violence from the Divorce Act um, which is a very broad definition uh, used primarily to decide, you know, who li lives in the house and custody of children and things like that. But basically, in this case, the court said, uh, we're going to use the definition of family violence from the from the Divorce Act. And in, in a civil claim, the wife can claim not only for physical abuse or sexual abuse, but for threats harassment, including stalking, failure to provide the necessaries of life, psychological abuse, financial abuse, threats to harm or kill an animal or damage property, um, etc. And uh, one of the most interesting things about that case was the, the plaintiff who was successful in having the court recognize this new tort, which would compensate her for decades of abusive conduct, was self-represented. 
Now, I understand the case is under appeal and the appeal's not yet been argued. So uh, we'll have to see where that ends up. But I thought it was very interesting. And I think, you know, it may take some time, but we may start to see this approach being used in um, other kinds of civil cases outside the family law uh, context. Um, the Grenville Christian College uh, class action um, common issues trial that I did with Sabrina Lombardi um, recognized as abusive all sorts of conduct that fell short of physical or sexual assault. So I think this concept of um, psychological abuse and uh, conduct that, you know, it falls outside the scope of an actual assault or, or harassment may well be compensable. Um, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to look at what's happening with the line of cases that say that, you know, sexual uh, harassment is within the exclusive jurisdiction of the Ontario Human Rights uh, Tribunal. But, you know, that's a big topic for a different day. I just think that this is a trend we're going to see where conduct that falls short of an assault uh, may well be compensable. But again, important thing to keep in mind uh, conduct that falls short of a physical assault in a domestic violence situation will not likely have the benefit of the no limitation provision in section 16 of the uh, limitations act which specifically provides no limitation period for physical assault so that may be an obstacle and of course we'll have to see what the court of appeal has to say about all this but those are some trends i think that we're we're going to see more of in the future yeah, thank you so much, uh, Loretta. Um, I, I, the, what you've just ended with in describing this approach of a, a broader conceptualization of what constitutes abuse or violence, I think is a really important development. And you referenced the 2021 changes to the definition of family violence in the Divorce Act and in Ontario, the Children's Law Reform Act as well. And there's been a private member still introduced twice recently into the federal parliament to create a new criminal co-defense of coercive control. So lots and lots of developments here that'll be important to keep our eye on. Um, just last week, one of my PhD students defended her dissertation and she had done interviews with survivors of sexual assault um, about their conceptions of justice. What does justice look like in the aftermath of sexual violence? And one of the um, Key findings of her research was, among other things, just how important financial compensation is to survivors, that it's a central element of their conception of justice. Um, and that leads me to thank you, uh, Loretta, for all of the advice and tips and updates you've provided today, but also even more importantly, to thank you for all the work that you do uh, with survivors to help them secure um, uh, justice in the aftermath of sexual violence. Um, thank you. Well, thanks, Janet. It's It's been a, a, a very rewarding practice for the last several decades, and hopefully I've still got a few good years left in me. <laughs> we hope that you do too. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.